We are now coming uh, to the word of the Lord. Um, I need to, for- I forgot, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. If you're new, it's a great day to be here. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, we're in the middle of a series on first, second, first Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. And if you've chosen this Sunday to be your first Sunday with us, you have good timing because we, are, we have just finished up first Timothy, and we're starting 2 Timothy this morning. Um, If you would turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll be looking at the whole chapter this morning. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who, called us, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a teacher and apostle, uh, a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he Uh, often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come uh, to this intensely intimate and personal letter, Lord, we ask as we peek into this um, bond between Timothy and Paul that we would see the words that you would have us here, that we would see your son, that we would see the wonder and preciousness of your gospel. Help us to walk in the way that that Paul would want Timothy to walk, that we might be blameless and that we might be good stewards of this deposit of the gospel that has been given to us. So open our eyes now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you have ever, I always like to start out with some participation, so I at least know that you are starting to listen right at the beginning. How many of you have ever uh, had to say goodbye to a good friend? 
maybe they're moving away, or maybe they're taking a new job, or maybe they're going in, you're going in separate directions after high school, or maybe it's much more heart-wrenching, uh, the death of a loved one. Uh, on, you know, you're saying goodbye on their deathbed. What do you say? What do you say in those moments when you're saying goodbye to this person who has meant so much to you, and there's a good likelihood that you're never going to see them again this side of heaven? What do you say? How do you sum up all that this person has meant to you? And many of us saw that struggle uh, when we said goodbye to the Dorsts three years ago, if you were here. Dr. Dave, who is um, on study leave uh, in, I think he's in Williamsburg right now, we saw him struggle to put into words what 18 years of ministering together, of living life together, means for Dr. Dave to say goodbye to his good friend, Dave Dorst. You know, as, uh, as all of us struggle to put into words what that meant and how to say goodbye. And when we try to do these goodbyes, we invariably end up coming back to two things. There can be some filler, but we almost always do two things. The first is that we almost always remember the foundational aspects of our friendship. Remember that time when, or, you know, I'm so thankful that we got to know each other because of fill in the blank. We almost always come back to those things that bonded us. And then two, we often give a charge of some sort. Usually it's short, generic, something like, I love you, take care of yourself, I'll miss you, please keep in touch. Or, I'll see you again in glory, go be with God and suffer no more. These heartfelt, meaningful goodbyes are exactly what we get here in 2 Timothy. You see, the circumstances have changed significantly for Paul, the author of this letter, since the last time we heard from him in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Paul is primarily concerned with the church as a whole, how the church ought to operate as a family, how godliness should look, um, and the such. But once we get to 2 Timothy, it all gets a lot more personal because Paul is becoming increasingly aware that he's not going to get out of jail alive. And he says as much in chapter 4 of this of this book, of this letter. And so in this second letter of Timothy is really a farewell letter. It's a final letter from Paul to his spiritual son and co-worker in the faith to try to sum up all that Timothy has meant to him and also to give him a charge moving forward without him. And so thus, we get what we'd expect from a farewell. Look back at the bond brought to, that brought them together and a charge. So first, the bond between uh, Timothy and Paul. These are in verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as I did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so knowing 
that Paul is facing death, knowing that this is the last letter that he's likely going to write to Timothy, and knowing that this might be among the last things that he leaves his beloved church, Paul starts with something astounding. Look with me in verse 1. Instead of looking at death and loss and sorrow, instead of looking at his execution with fear and trembling, Paul starts with this soaring proclamation that the gospel, which will lead to his earthly death, is instead a promise of life in Christ Jesus. Think about that for a second. A man facing death is extolling the promises of life made in Christ. It is the sure foundation in Christ, even in the face of death, separation, and loss, that has created the bond between Timothy and Paul. It is the gospel that Paul thinks about and thinks back upon and gives thanks for. You see, the gospel creates bonds. It creates, it creates an even stronger bond between Timothy, his, uh, between Timothy, his grandmother, and his mother than just biology, because he's also received a spiritual heritage of faithfulness from them. It is what has bound Timothy and Paul together to wildly different people. Paul, this Hebrew of Hebrews, the greatest of uh, basically to ever live, other than Jesus, of course. And then there's Timothy, who is shy and timid and infirm in a lot of ways physically. So you see this great titan and this sort of weakling in some ways. And yet there is this strong spiritual bond that is given to them. And Paul reminds Timothy that it is the faith that has connected them through Timothy's commissioning by Paul himself and all the tough times that they've been together. Remember, Timothy and Paul have been through a lot. They've served on two of Paul's great missionary journeys, They started churches together, preached together, traveled together, endured hardships together, and suffered together, all because of this gospel. There was a side-by-side nature to this bond as they served together and lived together, but there's also a face-to-face one as they grow their friendship and spiritual discipleship relationships. And so, friends, the gospel is at the very core of everything that is meaningful to Paul and to Timothy. The gospel is all that Paul wants to talk about with his friend, with his son, with his protege. And he wants Timothy to fan into flame this gift of God. And yet, you know, Timothy, who is sick and frail and shy and timid, on him is this mantle of leadership that is going to fall upon him after Paul is gone. And Paul's advice is really to just lean into or step into the gospel, to be even more about Jesus than ever before. That's the deposit that he refers to in verse 14. The gospel that Jesus came to die for on a cross for sinners, that he would win them, he would win for them life in resurrection, and that the Holy Spirit applies Christ's righteousness and resurrection life to dead and wretched sinners. That is the deposit given to Timothy to steward, to grow, and to protect. That's what Timothy is to fan into flame, this gift of faith. Which brings us to the charge that Paul gives Timothy. 
Look with me again at verses 8 to 18. I'm not going to read it because it's quite lengthy. So what does it mean to fan into flame the gift of God? And how does Timothy do it? Well, if we look at the four imperatives in this section, really right up there in verse 8 and then in verse uh, 13 and 14, I think we can get an idea of what this charge is. But there's a temptation to sort of take them separately, like a to-do list for Timothy. Well, you know, uh, do not be ashamed, share in the suffering, uh, follow the sound pattern of, of words, and then guard the good deposit. We'll just sort of check them off one by one. But the fact is that they come in pairs at the beginning, at the end, and the end of this paragraph. And they really clue us in that they're meant to be bookends to hold the whole thing together, to, ho- to sort of point at the underlying truth that we find in the middle of this passage. And so these bookend commands help us to understand what each of the other commands mean. You see, there are a lot of ways to not be ashamed, for instance. For instance, we could be prideful about whatever. We could be shouting about it from the rooftops. And paired with guarding the good deposit, we could think that it's our job to protect the truth. This might lead us into culture wars and fruitless debates as we rage about how unrighteous and wrong the world is around us. But the, the commands to share in the suffering of the gospel and to follow the pattern of sound words really temper that attitude of righteous indignation. Because the call to suffering and to following the sound pattern of uh, the, the sound pattern point us again to the gospel and to the image of our suffering Savior, which we find really in the middle of that section. Romans 8 tells us that Christians are being conformed to the image of Jesus. We are to be like Jesus, and Jesus was focused not on pointing out where people were wrong. He did do that, but he wasn't focused on that. He was, in fact, focused on meeting them in their sinfulness with grace and mercy to call them to righteousness. He focused on the sinner, not the sin. And for sure, there's a place for pushing back against the culture, for standing up for what is true. But this is not the passage to quote as your biblical proof text to do that. This is really concerned about salvation, about fixing our eyes upon the gospel, about what Jesus has done for us on the cross and his resurrection. That's what Paul is primarily concerned about. And as we think about sort of the fact that this is the thing that Paul wants to get across to Timothy more than anything else, it should emphasize the primacy and priority of the gospel over just about anything else. There are sure, for sure implications of the gospel, but the gospel must take priority. We need to be careful to not allow other things to take its place. And I think that that focus upon the gospel fits with the commands that we get. You see, Paul is emphasizing the preciousness of the gospel. The language of guarding emphasizes value. We only guard things of value. If it was worthless and inconsequential, inconsequential, we wouldn't guard it. We wouldn't care if we lost it because it wouldn't be a great loss. For instance, I treat my dishware pretty poorly. It's relatively cheap stuff from Bed Bath & Beyond, 
like that I got for my wedding. It's 10 years old. It's barked up all over the place, right? But in college, I had a professor who had like 18th century irreplaceable china that he allowed, he invited college students who are fairly clumsy and like not the most careful of people to come over and eat off of. He also had these like really expensive Irish glasses that he had imported that he designed himself that came in at like $100 a glass. And of course, after we finished our meal, we had to wash our dishes and you can't just stick china like that into the dishwasher. So there I am at the sink, hand-washing irreplaceable china. And you had better believe I guarded those dishes like nobody's business. Why? Because they're valuable. Whereas if my kids break a dish at home, like whatever, I'll just go buy some more from like Target or something. It's not a big deal. In many ways, Paul is challenging Timothy on how much he loves the gospel. How precious is this gospel to you, Timothy? Is the gospel precious enough for you to share in suffering for the gospel? Will Timothy see the social, relational, reputational, and comfort costs of staying faithful and step in? Or will he step out? This isn't really about the pride that we would have in suffering either, that as if we would be martyrs, we sometimes can sort of like sort of play the martyr. This isn't about beating our chests about how much we can suffer and being enamored with being considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Because really, that mentality is just all about us. Far from counting ourselves worthy for suffering for the name, the focus is rather this. Is Jesus precious enough for us to suffer? Is Jesus precious to us? That's the real question. And do we suffer, and we do suffer for what is precious to us. All of you parents know this. How much pain and suffering, loss of sleep, loss of comfort and anxiety do your children bring you? Lots. I was up a lot of times last night with, with children. And yet we step into that suffering and we step in gladly. Why? Because they're precious to us. And for those of you that are married, your spouse has a unique gift to be able to hurt you, to make you more angry than anyone else, and to push your buttons. Being married to another sinner can be brutal sometimes. And yet we are glad to commit ourselves to this other sinner. And why? Because they're precious to us. And so we step in because they are precious. But it's also more than that. Because when we step in, when we step into the gospel, when we step into that which the Lord has called us to do, we do exactly what has done for, been done for us by Jesus. Think about how sinful you are and how frustrating you must be to a perfectly righteous God. And yet Jesus was not content to leave us there, but loved us and saw us as precious. And so he came to die on a cross and be raised in resurrection life. Friends, as we step in, not only does it declare how precious Jesus is to us and how precious the gospel is to us, but it also reinforces within our own hearts how precious Jesus is. You see, when we, when we put the gospel in action in our own lives, as we seek to practice grace 
um, and sacrifice and service, as we seek to serve rather than to be served, and as we suffer unjustly and un, uh, like unfairly, the gospel becomes more real to us. Why? Because we are experiencing it personally for ourselves. The depth of our knowledge is often lacking when we haven't practiced it for ourselves. For instance, some of you know the joy that it is to go to Disney World. My children have never known that joy. They might think of the wonder of, oh, Disney World is great, but until they get there, they have no idea. And the same is for the gospel. We can understand the wonder of the gospel, how great it is. Intellectually, we know all good doctrine is great, right? We know that Jesus came and died, but until we put that into action and we see what it costs to say, to love sinners right where they are, we will never understand truly what it was like to, to love you and to save you. And so as we put the gospel into practice, we get a, a little taste of what it was like to save us. And we get to appreciate the gospel just that much more because it sinks down deep into our very bones. To experience it ourselves deepens our understanding of the gospel. And so the gospel grows in its preciousness to you. Do you see how the gospel sits at the very center of everything that Paul is writing to Timothy? How precious is this faith that has joined them together? How precious is this faith that is at the root of everything? But there's one last thing that I want to say about the preciousness of, of the gospel. It doesn't just motivate us to step into suffering and harp, or, or hardship or deepen our understanding of God's love for us. It doesn't just satisfy and enable us to enjoy the blessings of God, but the gospel, making the gospel precious in our lives also enables us to be faithful and to remain faithful. Unfortunately, faithfulness is not guaranteed. And Paul cares desperately that Timothy perseveres in the faith. Look at verses 15 and 18. These verses talk about a mass apostasy in Asia with prominent people who are close to Timothy and Paul leading the way, as well as with one lone exception, Anisiphorus, who remained faithful. These people would have been people that Paul and Timothy would have embraced and rejoiced over their faith in the same way that Paul currently rejoices over Timothy's faith. But unfortunately for us, past faithfulness doesn't guarantee future faithfulness. Not everyone will per persevere to the end, and there will be surprises. We could look at the passage in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Those verses are terrifying to me. And as Paul looks out on the future that Timothy will face without him, he knows that there are many threats to Timothy's faith, and those threats are very real. But we often embrace the fact, the very real and true fact that salvation isn't up to us, and that we have assurance of pardon 
in our salvation, we are still called to walk in faithfulness and to persevere. Those who don't persevere might, be, might have been deceiving themselves and others about the genuineness of their faith. And so we will know true believers by their perseverance. And even for those who have deconstructed, who have walked away, who have been excommunicated, whom we love dearly and pray desperately for, our hope is that the Lord will bring them back to the faith that they once professed, that he will preserve them. And so Paul calls Timothy to guard the good deposit to be actively on guard to protect this precious faith of his because there are a lot of things that will try to make him lose it. But how do you do that? How do you guard faithfulness? How do you guard belief? What does it mean to guard the good deposit? Well, I think the best way to guard the gospel in our hearts is to embrace it more fully, to make it even more precious to us. And let me, ex- let me give you an example illustration to explain that. A lot of people have told me to enjoy these years when my children are small because I never get that time back and they grow up so fast. But how do I make sure that I don't miss these years? I do it by embracing them in the present, by making them even more precious and important to me. You see, the danger lies in the mundane and the ordinary. Life and guard duty, if we want to sort of put it in the words of the charge, guard duty can be dreadfully dull and boring. Wake up, get ready for work or school, put in your time, eat, go to the bathroom, go to bed, rinse and repeat. The ordinary and the mundane have a way of draining the value and preciousness of things in our lives because we take them for granted. It's a subtle danger, a danger that doesn't even register because it's so small. Friends, we are here this morning because we love God and we love his church. Most of us have hopefully embraced the gospel and can see how precious it is, but we can't take that for granted. Godlier people people than you and I have fallen away from the faith. They have fallen into moral failure, apostasy, and deconstruction. And so it's not beyond any of us to walk away. I absolutely have it in me to turn my back on all that I hold dear now. I know what I love now, but tomorrow is not guaranteed. And it, even would, it wouldn't even be that hard for me to turn my back on the faith. It starts small. It's okay to miss church one day and to do little things in my own strength. It's just a one-time thing. It might be a one-time thing for a little while until I find that it's just easier to stay at home and watch online while the kids play or to not put in the time and effort to lift up the sermon in prayer. It's just a one-time thing. And then it's a once a quarter thing. And then we're off. Off to the races where nothing is steady and sure. I've lost the preciousness of the gospel and the church and all of that because I've moved my focus off of that which is precious and onto ostensibly good things, but not godly and best things. 
Maybe my focus moves to social justice or racial reconciliation or helping family members deal with aging or disease. It's easy for things to butt in and to take priority. And yet it also means that degree by degree, the gospel becomes less precious to us. And so today is a day of faithfulness. And as we cherish today, we are preserved by Christ until that day when he will welcome us with a well-done, good and faithful servant. Friends, we certainly have assurance, but at the same time, we are to work out our faith in fear and trembling, not taking for granted this gospel that we hold so dear. And so what can we do? How do we grow in our love for the gospel? I could tell you all the usual things of coming to church constantly, consistently, and without fail to develop regular spiritual disciplines of reading the Bible and praying, to be engaged in a discipleship relationship. But I think the number one way, the best way to intentionally grow your faith is to intentionally put yourself in the way of sinners. As you exercise the gospel, giving grace to those who don't deserve it, you can't help but deepen your love for Christ. Why? Because it is far beyond you to give grace. And you have to depend on him and learn what it means to walk in the way that Jesus walked. As you face the difficulty of loving other people, great big sinners like yourself, as you let people in to see the non-cleaned up version of yourself, you grow in your love for Christ. Truly, this is the vision that Christ has for his church in Ephesians chapter 4, where every member is present and speaking the truth in love, meaning that there needs to be love that is spoken, that Embodying Christ needs to happen. Why? Because there are other sinners in the church. The body then grows itself and builds itself up in love. Why and how? Through the extension of the gospel in the body of Christ. And so I am fond of saying that the church needs not just your goodness, not just your talents, not just your spiritual gifts, but it needs your sin as well. We need to be able to see your sin that we might extend the gospel to you. Not only for your sake that you might be sanctified, but for my sake that I might know the wonder of the gospel as it flows in my life. That's what it means to make the good deposit precious in your life. Exercise the gospel by being around sinners. Let us guard it not by zealously protecting it and fighting for it, but by making it precious in our hearts by loving those around us. Let's pray. Father God, there are many threats to our faith this morning. Threats that are overt and big that we can easily point to and the small subtle ones that change us degree by degree. And Lord, we know this gospel that you have come to die for us, to save us from our sin. We find that it is precious. And yet at the same time, Lord, we dare not take that for granted. 
Lord, open our eyes to your Son as we live around sinners like ourselves. Would you give us eyes to see the gospel at work, not only in the lives of others, but in our own lives, that we might value your gospel more, that it might become more precious to us, and that we might rejoice in it all the days of our lives. Lord, help us turn our eyes and focus on you and to make you the most precious thing in our, in our hearts and our minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.